0: Some 16 centuries ago, that great saint, father and doctor of the Church, Pope St. Leo the Great, said, quote, Pentecost holds within it great mysteries, wherein it is most clearly revealed to us that the sacred rites of the Old Testament had served as foundations for the gospel, close quote, St. Leo the Great. Pentecost clearly reveals to us that the sacred rites of the Old Testament are the foundations of the gospel. What does this mean? How does Pentecost clearly reveal this to us? In order to understand this, we need to take a few minutes reviewing what happened in three places. Eden, Babel, Mount Sinai. Then we need to take a quick look at a few aspects of Old Testament worship And then apply what we've learned there to Pentecost and then what we're doing here. The Garden of Eden. We have to always remember that everything that we do here, right here, is related in some way to the Garden of Eden. We'll never understand our holy religion. In fact, we can't understand our holy religion without understanding that everything we do here is somehow related to the Garden of Eden. Now the word paradise means a hedged-in garden. And Moses tells us that in the beginning, before the garden was destroyed in the great flood, there were four great rivers flowing out of it. Since Eden was hedged in, and since rivers flow downhill, that tells us that the Garden of Eden was an enclosed sanctuary set on top of a mountain. It's the very threshold of heaven a place where men could live in the intimate presence of God. But that relationship with God was based on obedience. Adam was assigned as God's steward to keep the garden, not to lounge around without any sort of responsibility. The privilege of living in God's presence was based on responsible obedience. If man disobeyed, he'd be punished with death. If man disobeyed, The whole natural order would be disrupted. If man disobeyed, childbearing would be painful. If man disobeyed, work would become difficult and tiring. If man disobeyed, he'd be driven away from the privilege of living in God's presence, and he would no longer be able to live in that beautiful sanctuary on the mountaintop, out of which flowed rivers of water. You don't need me to tell you that man disobeyed. And all these disasters fell upon him. And he was driven out, and Eden was closed to him. Man was no longer holy. The holy place where he once walked with God was veiled. He no longer had access to it. And God placed cherubim and a flaming sword, turning every way to keep anyone from entering the garden and approaching the tree of life. What lessons can we draw from Eden? In the Garden of Eden, we see a prototype of the conditions and environment which man can safely encounter God. For example, we're introduced to ideas that separation is an essential part of holiness, that there are degrees of holiness. Time has different levels of holiness. The Sabbath is more holy than other days of the week. Why? Because it's been set aside for God. Space has different levels of holiness. The sanctuary of the garden on the mountaintop is holier than outside. Things have different levels of holiness. The tree of life is holier than all the other trees in the garden. People have different levels of holiness. There's no comparison between Adam's Adam's holiness before he fell and afterwards. So the key notion is holiness is determined by the degree to which something has been set aside for and dedicated to God. And we see a basic pattern. Adam was given the command to keep and guard the first sanctuary on earth, the Garden of Eden. He disobeyed, and he and all his descendants were driven out. The basic principle here is that the closer man approaches to the ineffably holy presence of the Almighty God, the more his accountability increases, and the stricter his punishments become for any infractions. We see a basic temptation, the idea of self-determination. I'll do what I want. The lie of the serpent was that man could be as a god, deciding for himself what was good and evil. But in spite of the devil's lies, man remains a creature, and therefore he's bound to obey the laws of his creator. In other words, he's bound to do what God wants. And man can only have a true relationship with God by carefully keeping his divine law. The Tower of Babel. Babel is located down in the plains of Senar, down out of the mountains, down in the realm of fallen man. Scripture quotes the men of Babel saying, Let us make a city and a tower, the top whereof may reach to heaven, and let us... Make our name famous. Notice that in their pride, they weren't going to use any natural materials such as wood and stone. Instead, let us make bricks and let us bake them with fire. What are they trying to do? Make a man made mountain, build their own mountain, exalt their own name rather than the name of God. They were going to come to God on their own terms. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing in the first century, Described the sin of Babel, pointing out, quote, Nimrod persuaded men to believe it was not because of God, but rather it was their own courage which gave them happiness. Nimrod, who's the leader, Nimrod said that if God should have a mind to drown the world again, he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach, and that he would revenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Now the multitude were very ready to follow Nimrod and to consider it cowardly to submit to God. When God saw that they acted so madly, he caused a tumult among them, producing in them diverse languages, so they should not be able to understand one another. Close quote, Flavius Josephus. Obviously, the men of Babel are a law unto themselves, deciding what's good and evil. But of course, man is made to know and to love and to serve God, not himself, since God and God alone is worth of the glory. So although the men of Babel were united in the common cause, it was a cause of self-fulfillment, a cause of self-esteem, a union of evil, a chorus of voices shouting, We will not serve. We will do it our way. So Babel stands for the total inversion of reality. We will dictate liturgical relationships to God. We will set ourselves apart from his law. We will ascend. We will be a law unto ourselves. We will exalt our name. And so although men were bonded in unity, precisely because it's a unity of secular humanism, we can almost hear God sigh as he says, quote, Behold, it is one people, and all have one tongue, and they have begun to do this. Let us go down, and there confound their tongue, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Tower of Babel teaches us clearly that sin not only leads to further separation from God, but even from each other. There's an important symmetry we see here. Holiness obedience, and closeness to God go together. Holiness, obedience, and closeness to God. And they're opposed to sinfulness, rebellion, and distance from God and one another. So on the one hand, you have holiness, obedience, and closeness to God. On the other hand, you have sinfulness, rebellion, and distance from God and one another. Mount Sinai. Fifty days after Israel passed through the Red Sea... Moses goes up into the cloud on Mount Sinai. Why a cloud? Remember that since the fall of Adam, men couldn't walk freely in the presence of the Lord. So why a cloud? According to the ancient tradition, this cloud veiled the Lord. So it protected Moses and made it impossible for him to enter God's presence without being killed. And so Moses goes into the cloud and receives the Ten Commandments. The whole time, this mountain's smoking, it's shaking with earthquakes, there's flames and bolts of lightning and roar of thunder, blare of trumpets and whirlwinds and storms. While all this is going on, right there at the base of the mountain, what happens? The people rise up and commit idolatry. Now think about that. Right in front of them is this huge smoking mountain. It's covered with a cloud. There's flames and lightning and thunder and trumpet blasts from the angels. And they just rise right up in sin. They set up an idol, right in God's face, and then refuse to serve him. And then Moses comes down and says, If any man is on the Lord's side, let him join me. And so the tribe of Levi took up their swords and killed the rebellious idolaters, many thousands of men. And because of their obedience, because they put their love for the holy will of God before their love for their own flesh and blood, God set aside the tribe of Levi To be his priestly tribe. At Mount Sinai, we see that the law, the Word of God carved on stone tablets, is handed down from God to Moses on a mountaintop, an elevated sanctuary. In the destruction of the sinners by the swords of the Levites, we again see the principle that the closer man approaches to the ineffably holy presence of the Almighty God, the more his accountability increases and the strictures punishments become for any infractions. In the selection of the Levites as a priestly tribe, we again see the key notion that obedience to God's will leads to holiness, and holiness means being set farther apart from profane use and dedicated more exclusively to God. Okay, we're trying to understand what Pope St. Leo the Great meant when he said that Pentecost clearly reveals to us that the sacred rites of the Old Testament had served for the foundations of the gospel. So now we've taken a brief look at Eden, Babel, and Mount Sinai. Now we have enough background information to take a brief look at some aspects of the Old Testament worship, and then we'll tie that to Pentecost and today. Worship in the Tabernacle and in the Temple. The true worship of the Old Testament times was handed down on Mount Sinai directly to Moses by God. God dictated even the smallest details of how the religious ceremonies were to be performed. For example, in the Torah, which is also called the Law, or the Pentateuch, that's the first five books in the Bible, which were written by Moses, there are whole lists of infractions which God told Moses were offenses against his holiness. For example, the Lord tells Aaron, the high priest, that he or his sons must not drink any intoxicating drinks before they go in to serve at the altar. And he tells them they must also be properly clothed. The punishment for either offense is death. Did God mean that? Would God really kill Aaron or one of his sons for going into the holy place drunk or not wearing the proper clothing? You better believe it just before the warning about drinking, he had struck dead two of Aaron's sons for liturgical abuse. God means what he says, and he doesn't ever change his mind. Now that was a divine punishment for liturgical abuse in the olden days. If you think that we priests of the new covenant are going to get off any lighter, think again. The tent-like church Israel used before they built the temple was called the Tabernacle. It was designed by God, and as we've seen, it was guarded and served by the men from the priestly tribe of Levi. The Holy of Holies was the most sacred place in the tabernacle, and later on in the temple, which was a permanent structure built with the same basic pattern as the tabernacle on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which until the temple was built, traveled with Israel. The ark was a golden box built to exact specifications given by God. It contained a number of items, including the two tablets that contained the word of God, the Ten Commandments, which were carved in stone by God himself, and also contained a jar full of manna, which is that bread that had fallen from heaven. The ark had a golden lid with two cherubim on it. The lid's called the mercy seat, and over the mercy seat, the glory of the cloud of the Lord would appear. That's the Old Testament equivalent, or the Old Testament foreshadowing, of the real presence. Now, the ark was so holy, it couldn't even be touched. It could only be carried by certain members of the tribe of Levi, and they couldn't touch it. They had to slide golden-covered poles to rings on the side of the ark, and then pick it up and pack it on their shoulders like this, see? Now, remember what happened to Ozov. When King David was having the ark moved up to Jerusalem, they put it on a cart. But it looked like it was going to slip off, so Oza grabbed onto it and was struck dead right then and there. When God says, don't touch something, he means it. The sacred vessels used to hold the sacrificial blood and the worship of the temple were also holy and not meant to be used for any profane thing. Remember how King Balthazar of Babylon was having a big party. And decided that the vessels that had been captured when they destroyed the temple should be brought out and drank out of. And no sooner did they do that than they saw that frightful apparition of that hand writing on the wall. And that very night King Balthasar was killed and his kingdom was overthrown. When God says handle something reverently, he means it. We have to remember that every time man enters into a holy place, that his accountability increases. Every infraction is strictly punished by God, who is all holy. We have to be reverent. We have to be careful not to get too casual with God, not to get too casual with holy things. God loves us, but we have to pay attention to what he says. We need to have what's called a reverential fear of the Lord and not act like followers of Nimrod, like men from Babel, when we're in his presence. So God dictated even the smallest details of how the religious ceremonies were to be carried out and he commanded that the entrance to the Holy of Holies should be covered with a massive veil embroidered with the images of cherubim. Why was it veiled and why were there images of cherubim embroidered on the veil? Because the Holy of Holies was a symbolic Garden of Eden and Mount Sinai and Heaven. How's that? Well, remember that because of original sin, man's driven out of Eden, and Eden and heaven are both closed to man. The entrance to Eden is closed, covered, veiled. Man's no longer holy. The holy place where he once walked with God is veiled. He no longer has access to it. So, how can it be symbolically the Garden of Eden? It's easy. The Holy of Holies is the place where the Ark of the Covenant is placed, where the glory cloud of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, would dwell over that mercy seat. And since man had been driven out from enjoying the privilege of living in intimate union with God, the Holy of Holies, this liturgical garden of Eden, was closed. It's closed to all men except for the high priest who could only enter one day per year. Okay, it's covered with a veil, but why are there cherubim on it? Just as God placed the cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to keep men out after the fall, so also the cherubim on the veil are symbolically guarding the way to the Holy of Holies, reminding everyone, even the priests, there's no longer any access to the Holy of Holies, to that intimate presence of God, except for the high priest once a year. And there's no longer any access at all to the inside of the ark, to the manna the bread from heaven. These things have been closed to men. But in spite of the fact that the Holy of Holies is closed to men, the priests representing the Jewish people perform rites that symbolize their nation's service. They're performing rites that symbolize the service of the nation as a whole, and they're doing them right in front of the Holy of Holies, right at the very threshold of the place where God is present. And it's not accidental that the word scripture uses to describe the duties of priests and Levites as they work in and guard the sanctuary are exactly the same words that are used to describe Adam's duties of working and guarding the garden. Okay, we can see how it represents Eden. What about Mount Sinai? When Moses met face to face with God on top of Mount Sinai to receive the law, he did this in a thick cloud which availed the majesty of the Lord And as we've seen, that protected Moses and made it possible for him to enter into God's presence without being killed. When God dictated to Moses the precise rubrics that the priest must use, when he approaches the Holy of Holies, he commanded the priest use a cloud of incense for protection. Why? This is a quote from God, that he might not die. Close quote. Just as the cloud on Mount Sinai served as a veil and made it possible for Moses to be safe in God's presence, so also the cloud of incense used in the sanctuary protected the priests of the Old Covenant from the divine presence in the Holy of Holies. At Mount Sinai, the faithful couldn't see God giving the tablets to Moses. Rather, quote, All the people saw the voices and the flames and the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a burning fire upon the top of the mount. In the eyes of the children of Israel. Close quote Exodus. Similarly the faithful going up to the temple in Old Testament times couldn't see the Ark of the Covenant because it's in the Holy of Holies and covered with a veil. They couldn't see the altar of incense because it stood in the holy place right in front of the veil. But they could see the smoke and the fire on Mount Sinai so also they could see the smoke pour out from the top of the temple when incense was offered. And they could see the altar of burnt offerings, which stood immediately in front of the holy place in the courtyard of the temple. And on that altar, they could see the fire. was the perpetual fire that had fallen down from heaven, and the priest had to keep burning on the altar. As God said, the perpetual fire should be kept burning on the altar, not to go out. Perpetual heavenly fire, ever visible to the faithful. Okay, now we've taken a brief look over the worship in the tabernacle and temple. Let's tie it all together. Tower of Babel. At Babel, the unity of language was broken because of the desire of men to exalt their name. On Pentecost, the unity of language is symbolically restored because of the desire of men to exalt the name of God. From the upper room on Mount Sion, the Holy Spirit began pouring out his rivers of the true flowing waters of grace to water the earth and glorify the name of the Lord. And immediately, representatives of all the nations scattered over the earth began flowing into the unity of the one true church. And in contrast to Sinai, when Moses brought down the old law from Mount Sinai and the Levites took swords and slew thousands of sinners, St. Peter comes down from the upper room on Mount Zion to bring the new law, to preach the gospel, the word of the Lord, and uses the sword of the Spirit to slay the sins of 3,000 men that day. Remember the fi- heavenly fire in the temple. That perpetual fire that fell from heaven upon the altar of burnt offerings but was kept alive by the priests for generation after generation foreshadowed the heavenly fire that fell on the Catholic Church on the first Pentecost. The fire that fell on the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Peter, the Apostle, St. Mary Magdalene and all of the 120 in upper room. A fire that fell on them as if they were each Arcs of the Covenant. A perpetual fire that will never go out, the life and soul of the Catholic Church. And with the eyes of faith, that perpetual fire is ever visible to the faithful throughout New Testament times, because it has been kept burning, never to be put out, in the hierarchy of the Church, in the Pope and the Bishops. And the fire that fell in the upper room on Pentecost is the same fire that was first sparked in each of our souls at our baptism, It grew with our first confession, our first holy communion, and our confirmation. And then for men in my state of life, it blazes during ordination when a direct spiritual descendant of one of those apostles in the upper room passes on that fire by the laying on of his hands. Just as Adam communed with God on top of the mountain in the Garden of Eden, and just as Moses communed with God on top of Mount Sinai, and just as a high priest communed with God on top of Mount Moriah, and just as St. Peter came in with God on top of Mount Sinai, so also in the mind of the church, this altar is a holy mountain, which we can see by the prayers the priest says at the foot of the altar, which contain the phrases, The altar of God, thy holy mountain, and thy tabernacle. And in the high mass, when the high priest does go up to the holy mountain, just like Moses going up on Mount Sinai, and just like the high priest going up to the Holy of Holies on Mount Moriah, so also the priest is veiled by a cloud of incense. And just as the sanctuary of Eden or the temple is the very threshold of heaven, where man came into communion with God, so also an altar is the very threshold of heaven, where the priest, by his strict obedience to liturgical rubrics, not only visibly proclaims the holiness of God's name, but even brings God down into companion with man. Moses came down from the mountain with the word of God carved into stone tablets. The priest comes down from the holy mountain with the word of God made flesh. Remember how Mount Sinai was covered with cloud and smoking and flame with whirlwinds and thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts. If all that was going on when Moses received the law from God, when God's word was written on stone tablets, just imagine with the eyes of faith what's going on on this altar. When at the command of a priest, the word becomes really present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, in the most blessed sacrament of the altar. And then just as Moses came down from the mountain to teach people the word of God, just as St. Peter came down from the upper room on Mount Zion, to teach people the word of God, so also the priest comes down from the holy mountain and goes out to teach people the word of God, to use the sword of the Spirit to slay sin and to glorify the name of the Lord. And remember the degrees of holiness. In terms of space, as we've seen before, they're easy to see here. A church is a symbolic portrayal of creation. It's an architectural representation of reality tipped flat. There's three levels of reality. There's heaven, earth, and the underworld. The sanctuary symbolically is heaven. The nave is symbolically earth. And The vestibule is symbolically the underworld. Okay, we can see right here physically displayed in the sanctuary, we have Eden, Sinai, the holy place. There's the holy of holies and symbolically heaven. Notice to even come up here during ceremonies, we have to have on special clothing and act in very specific ritualistic ways because we're in the holiest place. And then, of course, the priest has to have on even more specialized vestments all of which have been consecrated specifically to be used in the worship of God, which have special prayers to be said for each and every article as he puts it on. And, of course, the priest has the most specifically ritualistic and complicated ways of acting. The priest's actions up here remind us that there will always be a sort of balance that we have to keep in mind when we approach God. On the one hand, God loves each one of us with an incredible Inexpressible, infinite love. A love so personal and so caring that He's literally numbered each hair on our heads. So that's on the one hand, we're called to this personal, loving relationship with this living God. On the one hand, and we don't ever want to forget that. But on the other hand, we also need to realize that God is almighty. He's infinitely powerful, and He's pure, complete, and unutterably holy. Which means that as we approach him, we have to be ever more careful to watch our behavior and not cross over any boundaries. We have to be careful to watch our behavior and not cross boundaries. That's true for all of us, those of us that work out here and all y'all out there. I hope you young people are listening. It's fair to say that the liturgy forms directly our notion of the holiness of God. Our notion of the holiness of God is formed directly by liturgy. Look at Sinai, look at the tabernacle, look at the temple. If these things were so holy, think of how much holier are our sacred vessels which hold the precious blood of God himself. Think of how much holier are our holy of holies, our tabernacles, which hold the true manna from heaven, which hold not the word of God carved in stone, but the word of God made flesh who is dwelling among us and who is veiled under the appearance of bread. And now, because of the new covenant, the priest can go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies every day. He can give us the fruit of the tree of life. He can open the ark, the ciborium. And because he can do that, we can receive that heavenly bread every day. Only now, it's not a shadow of good things to come. It's God himself. And just look at how the men who work closest to God spend years seven in my case, going through a series of consecrations, being set ever farther apart from the rest of you, giving up all kinds of natural goods in pursuit of holiness. And all this is done precisely so that we can work up here safely, so that we can safely take your pleas to God and bring his message to you, so that we can act in the person of Christ and not be a scandal and a stumbling block to you. Always remember, a Catholic church is a holy place, and everything about it has to speak and teach holiness. It's the house of God and the gate of heaven. We started by asking how Pentecost reveals to us that the foundations of the gospel are the sacred rites of the Old Testament. We've seen that, and now we can understand what St. Paul is referring to when he says to each of us Catholics, You have not come to a mountain that might be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet. A sight so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and into innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to a judge who is God of all and the spirits of just men made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. St. Francis of Assisi said, Man should tremble. The world should quake. All heaven should be deeply moved when the Son of God appears on the altar in the hands of the priest. Prepare yourself.